Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a seventh-generation witch. I was laying there, practically naked, and I had her hold me as if I was naked. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were rolling back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, Hey guys, we're back on Conspiracy Normal. It is now 2017. Yeah. And hopefully you heard the new theme song. I heard that that was actually <laughs> being worked on by Mr. Luke, who of course isn't here as usual. Yeah, but we, We've been teasing this song now for months. We have to have I, it. I think we've been teasing it for a year, actually. <laughs> not, not months, probably years at this point. Well, the reason why we don't have Luke is that it's uh, 11.30 a.m. for us, and we have a guest that we're actually speaking to across the proverbial pond, as I like to say, and that is uh, Ms. Steph Young. Uh, Steph, it's been a long time coming, and I'm really stoked to have you on the show, so welcome to Conspira Normal. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. It's <laughs> we. I was going to mention too that it's been really, really cold here in Nashville, and apparently it's just as cold in England. So, as we were talking well, is, before, yeah, it's freezing cold here. But um, I just had a power cut, so I've, I was running around like a maniac looking yeah. for candles, and it was all a bit hectic. 
Yeah, hopefully the podcast got got keep continue to smile on us. It's not been too kind on us lately, but uh, <laughs> it's good that your power is back on. So, uh, Steph, I just want to kind of t- uh, before we get into talking about your book, Panic in the Woods, I want to kind of get a feel for how you got interested in these type of just like weird, arcane kind of subjects that you talk about how what what really sparked your interest in that and what and made you to want to start writing about this this kind of material well i'd always been fascinated with um near-death experiences and life after death and angel encounters and things like that and i used to read magazines that you could buy in the news agents here and then one day i thought to myself i'd really like to write one of these articles so i said to them, could I write an article about weird creatures in the woods? I don't know where I came up with that from, but, and they said, yes, you can. And then I thought, oh no, what have I done? So I wrote it and fortunately they accepted it. And I started writing, you know, magazine articles. And then I thought, oh, I'd really like to write books. So I started collecting everything. And actually I was writing about um, time travel for, for one of the first books. And that kind of led me into the woods because I came across places like Segi Mountain um, and Romania and all these weird places all over the world that were forested, but they had strange experiences of people going into vortexes or dimensions or disappearing and not being able to be seen by the searchers. And mm-hmm. it went from there and it seemed to be that paranormal things are happening in the woods. Obviously, we've got the cryptids, you've got strange lights in the sky and it just, it just, and then I started finding really weird stories as well, you know, quite bizarre ones that I think we'll probably, probably talk about tonight. And well, for me, the fascination is that there's, there's never an obvious answer. So that thirst for looking for the answer is what drives me, uh, you know, to research. It, it's just an addiction because it's so puzzling and so baffling that it just gets your brain working all the time. Hmm. What's uh what kind of cryptids like what's kind of famous cryptid that you would that we one would normally associate with England? Well, I don't really think there are, but then there are people that study Bigfoot over here or wild men. Um I haven't really looked into that side of things. Traditionally, the UK, Ireland, Wales would be the black shuck. So not so much a cryptid, but the phantom big black dogs. Right, right. That's traditional. Um, the Hound of the Baskervilles stuff. Yeah, yeah uh, many sort of 1800 and, and 1900 accounts of that. Um, in terms of cryptid, they, well, we do have um, escaped, <laughs> escaped pumas and things that seem to have bred. So there are often really big cat sightings. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. That's 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 interesting stuff. Have they actually proven that that's that that's an actual real thing? Not really. No. Um there's always photographs and mm-hmm. sometimes they do look absolutely huge, but one has never been caught as far as I'm aware. But the idea is I think that they were um exotic pets at one point um you know uh, there was a case in uh, scotland and i was looking into it it's called arthur's seat which is a craggy kind of rock place outside of edinburgh and a woman had gone missing there and the police had the helicopter up with the infrared looking for her and the policeman who was in the helicopter said oh my god there's a huge puma stalking one of the policemen who were looking oh. for her but no idea where it came from um so we have those. Um, there's, you know, the odd 
sort of wolfman type encounter. Um, we've had huge ape-like creatures over the years, but n- n- not really. And I suppose bearing in mind that our national parks are vastly, vastly smaller than you would have right. in America. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, and there's a place in Canuck Chase up in the north of England that's supposed to have black-eyed kids in it. Um, mm. There's Pigman's been seen there, but the Pig problem man. is that the Pigman, <laughs> yeah, um, it's kind of maybe that's like a Goatman rival or something, but right. it's so hard with these, you know, because uh, I, I don't know. I haven't really looked into those ones, um, really. Well, you know, it's interesting to me, just as an aside, that like, you know, you could almost, as far as like North America, you could you could explain Bigfoot because you have the vastness of the North American continent. You have the vastness of the Pacific Northwest where there's plenty of places to hide. And then plus we can also say, hey, they came over the Bering Land Bridge and all this kind of thing. But Great Britain would be a completely different case because you have a smaller area, a mm. highly populated island, and there's not a lot of places to hide. So it's almost just like there there might be even more of a supernatural element to some of these encounters in in Britain as opposed to the as opposed to the United States. Not that there's a ton, not a ton of weirdness here, but I've always found that very interesting. Yeah, they tend to be. There's a place in Ireland um, which was where the Hellfire Club they built. Um, this was a, a club for sort of aristocrat aristocrats, and they built a. Uh, base, a sort of clubhouse on the top of a hill not far from um, Dublin and they built over an ancient monument sorry, an ancient mound and there's always sightings there of this huge black dog Um, and there were sightings of of a a devil there that was playing poker with them and so there's a lot of paranormal stuff, yeah, absolutely Yeah, Benjamin Franklin was actually a member of the Hellfire Club was he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to hang up. What was the guy? Uh, John Dudley? Was that the, the, I think the, I can't remember the guy's name that was the head of the Hellfire Club, but but Benjamin Franklin would hang oh, out with him. I think when, when Franklin was in London, he would hang yeah. out and hang out with the Hellfire Club and yeah. <laughs> 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 so originally uh you had written under the title Stephen Young and I think everybody asked you this but uh mm-hmm. why did you pick a, a a pen name to 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 write under the first time Well two reasons really because um a I was writing a book on <laughs> time travelers and it was quite right. you know getting into science science and um I have a brain that's not really suited to science so I thought oh it's going to be better if it sounds like it's a man and also I I never actually expected to be asked um, to go on to radio shows and um, I know that I was on Coast to Coast about two years ago I think mm-hmm. and I thought it was a practical joke when I got the email but then I thought hold on nobody knows because I, I never told anybody I was writing so I thought nobody knows I'm writing how could this be so that's the reason I you know and actually I, I do get a lot of stick that I started writing as a man but you know pen names and literature go together actually not so much non-fiction but it's t- tradition in in English literature, you know, to do it. So I just thought, oh, that's fine. But, sure. you know, of course I had to say, I'm not a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been obvious after a while, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't do a man's voice for two hours. How am I do that? <laughs> <laughs> Get one of those voice disguiser things. So, <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine suggested that. <laughs> 
work. But now you just write under Steph Young, so. Yeah, I don't think I can actually change it on Amazon, or I, w- I would have just got it all changed. But yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So how many books were under, actually written under the Stephen Young? Uh, I think Monica? some are Steph, some are Stephen. You know, the, if you put one or the other, right. I think they just come up now because fortunately you just knock a bit of the end of the name off, and it's you know it'll show up. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so let's talk about. Panic in the Woods. Uh, this is an interesting book, an interesting title. Uh, some of it has to do with woods and some of it doesn't. And there's one story that's really crazy, creepy that has to do with woods. But uh, let's start off with, I want to talk about uh, the Donald Kemp disappearance. And this is, an, this is a very odd and strange and kind of a convoluted story. So let's get into that. Like what, what happened there? Yeah, it's a very strange story. Um, Well, it started when an advertising executive who lived in New York, um, he'd had a car accident and he was slightly injured from it and it took some time recovering. But as well as working in the um, advertising agency, he also was an avid um, Abraham Lincoln researcher and he belonged to a private group and they were looking into particularly looking into his assassination well he decided that he was going to quit his job uh, this was back in 1984 and he was going to take off somewhere quiet and the belief is that he was going to write his book about what he'd found out well his sister many years later was the one that really provided a lot more of the story to this um, so she said, um, it was actually all my fault that, that, that we ever went to this house in Maryland. So she's talking about something that happened before he disappeared. And she says, it's all just so so bizarre. There's so much more to this than, than people knew. Well, I mean, it encompasses, you know, maybe unexplained deaths, government conspiracies, um, UFOs, seances, cattle mutilations. It's got the lot, really. But um, so he, he set out. And he was driving through Wyoming when he, for some reason, must have abandoned his car and disappeared. The car was found later with the headlights on, the engine still running, and his clothes trailing out of the car. Hmm. Well, a police search was started immediately, and they saw that his tracks led a few yards, I think, really, off into the prairie, but didn't really seemed to go anywhere after that but when they expanded the search somehow or other they found six miles away in a barn one of his socks and this was placed beside a pile of wood almost as though somebody was going to build a a fire um it, it wasn't snowing at the time it did actually start to snow um about i think 24 hours after he disappeared So they looked for him and there was no sign of him. And really, the police kind of had the assumption that he'd left the car, he'd walked off and he wanted to die. Um, But still, where was his body? Um, Well, they couldn't find him at all. And then, as I say, blizzard conditions then started afterwards. um, And the police kind of assumed, well, he's been buried somewhere in the snow. But five months later, two separate...
separate people came forward to say that they'd seen him in Casper, Wyoming. And then a close friend of his, um, a female artist who lives in New York, came forward to say that she had been out of town, but on her answer phone message, she was sure that he'd left her two messages. She was absolutely sure it was his voice. Um, and the police managed to trace the phone number and it went back to a trailer in Wyoming. Well, the trailer was owned by a young man who was called Mark Dennis. And he was asked about the phone calls, but he said, I've no idea what you're talking about. Well, the phone calls did appear on his phone bill. And the sheriff questioned him several times about these calls, but he denied ever making them. And the sheriff said that he was satisfied he hadn't made them. Well, even stranger, though, was that... Um, his sister said that this man, the young man, looked so much like her missing brother that he could have been a doppelganger. And she said, if you'd have seen them in high school photos, you would have said that they were twins. Well, he eventually, because he was getting harassed, um, and, and this man in the trailer, you know, saying, oh, I've got nothing to do with this. He eventually got a lawyer a few months later, and then he moved away from the area. Um, well, fast forward to four years later, and his body is found. So his body is found very close to the spot in which his car had been abandoned on the road in the prairie. But his body is in pristine condition. And it was suggested that he died of exposure not long after his disappearance. Um, but the thing was, um, his body had no predation on it. So it had been supposedly lying out on the prairie for four years, but no animals had gone near it. Um, and of course, also, if it was there now, why wasn't it seen between the four years that he'd been missing? Um, right, because the snow's going to melt. I mean, it, yes. he would clearly be laying there for four years four in years. The spring yeah. and summer. Be a skeleton, yeah, he, really, honestly. I know. And... And, and and then, but then things get really weird because his sister said, um, well, she received a phone call from a man who was a doctor at the Smithsonian Institute and was also a consultant to the FBI. And he said to the sister, um, I'd really like to see your brother's body. And she said, well, of course. And, and it, they gave gave the body and, and he conducted his own research into it. And he found that the man was missing his hyoid bone, which is the bone that supports the tongue in the mouth. Mm -hmm. And he had a tiny hole in the top of his head, in his skull. And he said, I can't tell you anything that would make that hole. Um, there's no tool man-made that I know of that could make that hole. But also, his sister was contacted around the time that her brother disappeared by a researcher who was another doctor and he was there with um, a group of UFO investigators who were camping out very close to where Don had gone missing. And he had phoned her at this time four years ago and said, I think I know what's happened to your brother. He said, we're here, we're looking into cattle mutilations. We think that they took your brother. Well, his sister said, well, at the time, I just dismissed it as crazy because this was 
way before we had any TV shows, really, you know, no sci-fi channel, no National Geographic about UFOs or, or anything like that. So she thought, well, he's clearly insane. Um, but then, of course, when the doctor at the Smithsonian Institute said about this hole in his head, she thought, well, is there something to this or, or, or what? And she was still sceptical. Um, but the story goes on and on, really, because added to this was the fact that when he um when when the man's car was asked to be returned by don's mother she sent one of his friends to go and pick up the car and as he was driving back on the way back bearing in mind that it had all of his research papers and all his possessions in the car he stopped off at a motel and overnight when he went back out the next morning most of the research notes had been taken the car was broken into and they were taken. Well, when the car got back to his mother's house, their family decided that they would donate the rest of the research papers to, I believe it was a, well, first of all, it was a researcher um, who lived in Virginia and he took possession of the papers, but then his house burnt down and he was killed in the fire along with the research papers. And then they had some more audio tapes I think it was and they decided to donate those to a civil war store well again the man who owned the store had an accident he died the audio tapes disappeared and so you think well this is strange but then his sister again adds even more and she said when she was talking about um, right at the beginning saying we should never have gone to that house well before he disappeared they'd both gone to um, the uh, the museum in, in Maryland. And when they walked in the museum, this is, you know, to Abraham Lincoln, um, when they walked in, the receptionist said to them, oh, are you the writer who's going to write a book on, on the assassination? And he said, yes. And she said, well, I've been given this card to give to you. And the card was the phone number of a psychic who lived very close, close by. Mm. So Don was really curious and he phoned her up and she said, you must come and have a seance. So they went along. And during the seance, Don had taken a camera and his audio rec- recording equipment and they were filming it. And the the psychic was able to give details about his life as a young child and pet names and things that they wouldn't really have known so his sister was convinced that she was genuine and then part way through the seance they see a apparition of a woman standing in the doorway who is wearing an old-fashioned clothes sort of like a bustle and all of a sudden she said that the, the light started flashing on and off and then the psychic appeared to have a red line going from one side of her neck so her throat was being cut and she said the sister said all hell broke loose it was screaming and mayhem and eventually she said don took control and he just said say say some prayers out loud and he led them in prayer apparently and then it all just calmed down again well the sister said i would never ever go through that again i'd never go back she said but i know that my brother did um and also The sister added that before he disappeared, very, very shortly before, he said to her, I'm giving you this book. It was a book on the mysteries of the universe. And he turned to a page and he said, I don't know why, but I think this is going to be important to you. And it was a book, um, a page about the Pleiadians. And again, his sister said, well, I don't know anything about this. So I just put it on my bookshelf and I didn't, you know, just uh, thanks. This thing just gets weirder and weirder. I know. It really does, honestly. 
<laughs> I know. Um, I think that's all of the twists and turns. But I mean, what what do you make of that, really? Well, you know? okay. Well, uh, th- let's just focus on the assassination part of it. Now, it almost seems like somebody doesn't want them to know something. Like the, the things go missing, somebody dies in a mysterious fire, somebody else dies and tapes go missing. Right, and three or four uh, separate incidents to slowly and systematically destroy all right. this evidence. And I, mm. I want to say I love how in the book, whenever like a question popped into my head, it seems like two paragraphs later you addressed it. And for this one, for me, it was like, why Abraham Lincoln? Who could possibly yes. care about something that happened so long ago? Or how could it be relevant to anyone today or incriminating to anyone today? Or, <laughs> yes. And, and you know, you brought that up and addressed that as well. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, this well, was the 1980s. is 120 years after the assassination. <laughs> right. Who could possibly have anything to lose? Everybody should be dead by that <laughs> You know, I know. I've just thought of something actually. I thought maybe somebody in the private group that they yeah. were all researching together. Maybe they were so um, obsessed with it. You know, like in an Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes style. Maybe one of them killed him because he'd found the answer and he wanted to reveal the answer and he was jealous because the other person had found the answer. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's it's something like that. <laughs> that's possible. I could see that much more so. What are you going to say, Rob? No, I was just going to say, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Somebody who would, you know, want to take credit for it or, you know, something along those lines. But that or some organization that's been around for a long time that possibly could have involved and, you know, not wanting to tarnish their Mm -hmm. reputation. I'm not sure who or what that could be. Yes. So almost like they were coming up with these. It's the Pleiadians, it's the cattle music, all of that that stuff to sort of throw people off the track, making it look like it. I mean, yeah. Also, it seems like there's almost like this idea of a curse involved too, right? Because of the mysterious fire, he gives it to somebody else, that person dies, as I mentioned before. Uh, that, that There's an element there of that. And then there's just very supernatural elements, like the mysterious phone calls, the, the guy socks. looks like a younger version of himself. Uh, no, who was the boy in the trailer? Who was his right, doppelganger? Right. Yeah. I mean, is there a possibility that that could have actually have been him hiding out there? No, because actually his mom, um, in the end, I think the boy moved away because yeah. if his his mom was insistent that he had something to do with her son's death and she wouldn't stop. So I, I, it couldn't have been him uh, as far as I can make out, no. Hmm. And then nobody knows what happened to the boy after that? And just and I then, I don't know. And no, then, and then it has that like kind of ghost phone call element there to it too. And then you don't even know what to make of the hole in the head. <laughs> what that even means? <laughs> I know, and the sock in the barn, and right. How did how did that get there? If he didn't walk there, and oh, yeah. and, and and again, what, what, if his body was brought back, where had it been for four years? Ah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Very weird, very weird. Mm. There's another case in the book that's actually kind of similar, and this involves two people, and this is the Arnold... I'm going to make sure I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Arnim Archambault case, and this happened on an Indian reservation, and there's some sim- similar elements to the other case. Yes. Let me see. Um, this was in 1993 when two bodies were found in a ditch, and... Um, 
where was this? On the Yankton Sioux Indian Reservation in Lake Andes near South Dakota. Um, So December 1992, actually. Yeah. So March 93, they were found, but it happened in December 92. So on that night, um, these young teenagers, three of them were in a car and they were driving towards a remote intersection on the outskirts of this reservation. And the road was a bit icy and the driver of the car saw that the road was clear, crossed over without stopping at the intersection. And moments later, they believed the car skidded and crashed into the ditch. Um, now, the ditch was frozen at that point. So the driver was Arnold Archambault and his girlfriend Ruby was with him, as well as her cousin, Tracy. Well, Tracy later said, well, we had all been drinking a bit and she didn't really understand what had happened. But all she could say was that when she opened her eyes after they'd crashed, her cousin and the boyfriend weren't there in the car anymore. Um, And then later she also said that um, her cousin had managed to open the door and climb out. But as she, Tracy, went to climb out after her, the door slammed and she was trapped inside. So somehow the boyfriend... And the girlfriend got out of the car and left the cousin in the car. Um, by the time she got out, she couldn't see them around. So, and, and daylight was coming by this point and the police came along. So immediately they started searching for these two, the, the boyfriend and girlfriend who'd gone missing. Because they thought, well, they've got to have serious injuries because of the way that the crash had happened. And also because it was freezing and frozen, they thought, well, they're probably going to go into shock and it could kill them. So the police looked everywhere for them and they couldn't see any sort of tracks about where they could have gone. And they couldn't have fallen into the the trench or the ditch because it was frozen. And there was a lake nearby, but they did have a look. They couldn't see any tracks leading to the lake. And also there was no holes in the lake that they could have fallen into. So they carried on, looked around everywhere. And in the end, um, after two or three days, they just had to sort of call it off. Um, The parents didn't hear from them. So nobody had seen them um, and they couldn't be found. Well, then spring came and a driver who was passing the scene of where it had happened three months earlier saw a dead body lying in a ditch. And it was the missing girl, Ruby. And when the police arrived, she they, they looked at her and she, she could be identified from her tattoo because they couldn't instantly tell it was her um, because her body was too decomposed to identify her from her face. Um, she was missing both of her shoes and her glasses, but she did seem to be wearing the clothes that she disappeared in. Well, having found her, of course, they think her boyfriend must be close by and they don't find him that day but they find him the following day, just a few feet from her. Hmm. But his body is not in any kind of condition like hers, so it's nowhere near decomposed like hers. He's almost pristine, and it doesn't appear that he was frozen anywhere. Um, The weird thing is, though, he has got a key on him that they can't identify as belonging to any of the three or any of their relatives. So they've no idea where he got the key from. Um... And the police, again, have got no idea. The sheriff in charge said it's the most baffling thing he's ever come across because he was adamant and he even got the rest of the police involved in the search to write affidavits to say, we searched everywhere. No, they couldn't have been frozen in the ditch. They weren't in the lake. Um, 
And 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 then um, another twist came because um, a person came forward who was polygraphed, and he said, "But I saw the missing boy on New Year's Eve. He was with three other people." So you think, well, okay. Sometimes when people go missing, if you knew them or if you see a, a photo of them, maybe you are looking for that person. You, you know, so maybe you think you see them and you're mistaken. But he believed the witness believed regardless, that he had seen this boy. So I, I don't know about that. But, of course, the weird thing is, is, is how were they at different stages of decomposition? Where had right. they been in all of that time? And had the girl died? Had, had they been taken away? Had the girl died or been killed, but the boy kept alive? Uh, again, it's a really strange case. Yeah, and then the third person in the case walked away from the car and yeah. then and then didn't see them. Uh, I I wonder if if they're if she may have been covering for him or 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 what could have happened there. Remember that that the, her testimony wasn't 100% mm. correct. That's yeah, that's the be- only thing that could possibly explain it. Yeah. So did somebody come along and take them away and and the third girl knew? Yeah, it's it's possible. Uh, but they didn't seem to be able to determine that they had any wounds, or so I'm not sure how they died or how they were killed either. Right. So, yeah, but but yes, maybe the third girl had a lot more, perhaps knew more. Then she was. Then she was probably letting on. It almost mm. seems like there's a in this one. It almost seems like there's a there, there could have been something criminal going on there. Or maybe some kind of involvement yeah. uh, with I, this kid with some kind of criminal element. Yeah, I don't know why either, but I feel well. I suppose actually because we don't have the hole in the head and the cattle mutilations and yeah, the seances, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I do. I do feel that I feel as though I see this really sinister figure that took them and kept them somewhere right. for his own reason. I, I presume. I, I don't know. I feel like that's more likely. Yeah. And then possibility that that he, whoever this person he was with on New Year's Eve, may have been that person, possibly, or who knows? Yeah, really. who who were the men? Yeah, because uh, he was seen with three men. Yeah, it's always baffling in these cases, especially when they go and they they search for them and then find them three months later somewhere that they were there the whole time. I mean, that's that's baffling in and of itself. I, yeah, I kind of guess it's baffling why if somebody. If if a person or a group took him or took them, why do you return them to exactly the same yeah. place? Is it, is it some kind of ritual that you enjoy doing? That uh, because that's that's weird, isn't it? That you place them back there, but maybe that's part of it. Right, or playing with the cops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe. maybe. Uh, one other thing that you talk about in the book is Rendlesham Forest, and we had on back. Uh, it's been. About a year and a half now, we the first time we had Peter Robbins on the show, we talked about uh, his book, Left at East Gate. And, you know, that's the big, uh, for Great Britain, that's the huge case over there. It's kind of like you guys, Roswell is the Rendlesham Forest incident. Uh, but Rendlesham Forest in and of itself has so many weird things happening that just don't even have anything to do with UFOs. And you, you kind of document some of this in the book. So what are some of those weird occurrences that happen in the Rendlesham Forest area? Well, you see, I'm, I'm quite a newcomer 
to this arena. So I have to say I didn't know anything really about Rendlesham at all other than hearing, you know, years ago on Coast to Coast about the experience there and Colonel Holt and etc. So I always felt that I wouldn't even look into it actually. And it was only because somebody called Chris contacted me um, and he started sending me some photographs that he'd been taking in the forest. And can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so sorry. My, I thought my sound had gone. So Chris started contacting me, and sadly, he's he's now passed. Um, uh, so it's a very sad story, really, because Chris Nash used to go there um, a lot during the week, spend many, many nights there, all night. And he'd contacted me because he took a picture, and it looks really quite scary it's set in the forest and you can see these bright yellow eyes and to me it looks like it's got these little horns I know that sounds you know silly but it looks like a really scary picture and he's not the only one that's taken pictures he he's been going there as well as a lady called Brenda Butler who I didn't know but Chris introduced me to her work and she'd given lectures she'd written a book about her experiences in, in Rendlesham so she captures orbs um, ectoplasm type things um, and, and again you know there's lots of photos well Chris had sent this picture of what looks like I don't know you could say it looks like a demon it looks like some kind of strange entity and he'd said um, I'm I'm a bit disturbed by it really because I was coming up to the gate in Rendlesham and I I could hear this voice calling my name in my ear really loud and He said after that, it felt like this presence was bearing down on me. And he said it felt like death itself. Um, Mm. Well, he took the photo to a medium before he contacted me. And the medium said, I don't want it in the house, um, so leave it outside. And she did say to him, "Um, you're playing with fire. If you continue to go back to the forest, you're playing with fire. Um, And he said this to me and he said, well, you know, I I don't quite know what to do. Should I... Um, you know, see an exorcist or what? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm, I would go to a spiritualist church. Um, but at the same time, he also liked, he loved being in the forest. So he, he was scared, but he wasn't. You know, it was an attraction for him. Um, but it did seem to have followed him home because he said, uh, he sent me a picture where he had, um, looked. it looked like six six marks on his leg, so six finger marks, um, which, of course, you know, you can be sceptical and say, well, you could do that yourself. Of course you could. Um, And he said that he could hear growls in his house. Um, So, you know, all of that gives me the impression that it's something demonic, but I don't know. And I spoke to um, a lady um, who runs a radio show, and she lives not far from there. And she said, you know, you're presuming it's a demon. Don't don't make presumptions just because, you know, it looks like it, that it sure. is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the thing is, um, Brenda Butler herself, she had been living on a farm about 20 minutes away from Rendlesham Forest and had had an experience prior to the famous incident. And she's had very strange experiences, which seem to be ET-like creatures in the forest, not demons. She, when she was a child, she grew up on a farm. And a year before the Rendlesham Forest incident, something landed in their field. And the next morning, um, her father and her saw it, saw the bright lights. The next morning, there was broken tree branches and an 
impressions in the mud of the field. So she clearly thought something had happened. And she began to investigate really from there. And she talked about a rabbit catcher who had actually been out in the woods prior again to the December incident. And he had seen these children, or what he thought were children, hmm. dressed up. And um, he, he went towards them thinking, well, they shouldn't be out in the woods at this time of night. Like, how but, were they dressed? Well, he seemed to think they were in party clothes. I'm, just, I'm sure it was party clothes, like in some kind of outfits. So um, weird. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. But the thing is, um, the thing is, he, he called the security base. Yeah. Um, and by the time the security base came out to him, they disappeared. And he was taken back to the base. He was arrested and taken back to it. And they were questioning him. And after that, he refused to talk about it. You know, and so there were accounts of things going on before the Rendlesham incident. So, of right. course, that was all new to me. Um, well, Brenda herself, again, like Chris, has, has been addicted to going to the forest. And she described how she was there with an American friend once and they were just walking along with, with her dog. The next thing they knew, they found themselves in a completely different area. They didn't recognize where they were. It was as though the forest had opened up and they were walking in fields. So it was nowhere that she'd seen before. And the sky was different. And they had to walk and walk and walk. Eventually, they did get back to where they'd parked the car. And they decided to get in the car and try and drive around the other side of the forest to find out where they'd been. And they just they couldn't make any sense of it at all. And Brenda says that um, she has seen greys in the forest. She said, I know that some people say, yeah, we've been dragged down into the bases underground. And she said, no, I don't believe that for a second. However, I have seen the greys working. They're doing some kind of digging. And she said, and they've walked alongside me as well. Um so, you know, I didn't know any of this, really, until Chris contacted me. Have you been there, Steph? No, no. Oh. He, kept inviting, he kept inviting me. I was thinking, I don't want to go. It's How so far scary. is that from you? Um, I think it's about three hours. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's just so sad, though, because Chris, he had a car accident as he was leaving the forest. Um, uh, that was just recently, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I was so shocked because he sent a message not you know, probably a couple of days before that saying, I'm on my way, you should be here, it's going to be really great. You know, he was he was fascinated with it. Um, but, you know, it was scary at the same time. Um, really, really strange. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a strange place. And that's the part that, I mean, even, uh, well, Peter brings that out in Left at Eastgate, you know, later in the book that, you know, that there is just strange stuff that has gone on there. It's not just what happened in 1980. It's ongoing and probably has been since ancient times. I mean, really, honestly, it's just something weird about that particular area. I must read his book. Yeah, it's a, it's a great one. It's a really great yeah. one. It was huge in the UK, actually. It was uh, a, a really a, a bestseller because of just... The, you know the material about the about the Rindlesham Forest. Like I said, that's that's you guys Roswell, basically. Really, but, uh, that's the that's the one big case from the UK. 
Well, yeah, and as I say, I was kind of oblivious to it, really. And I just thought, oh, this is something that went on years ago. I heard it right. on Coast to Coast. You know, I had no idea that it was it was alive in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, just the weirdness. Like, uh, the the kids in party clothes and the greys mm. digging. What are they digging? What are they, <laughs> what are they digging for? <laughs> I don't know. And, so and also weird. the way... Yeah, and the way Brenda says, you know, they walk along beside me. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I wouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah. I'd never go back. She's quite <laughs> calm about it, you know, matter of fact. Let's go see the greys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my gosh. Well, talking about weirdos in the woods, uh, let's get to this case, because this, this was my favorite of the book and this also has to do with our local area around tennessee where we are <laughs> and this is the uh, heath bullard and david smith and i'm not going to give anything away i'm just going to let you tell this story because this is one of the most unsettling things i think i've ever heard in my life <laughs> I know. Well, you're going to have to help me out because I find it so confusing. You know, the, <laughs> where they gone? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, so these two boys, um, this is back in 1984, in August 1984. Was it, was and it 94? Because I think was it was around the West Memphis Three. I think you mentioned that in the book. Um, oh, gosh. Um, okay. Well, let's go in 94. Um, <laughs> I'm already confused. Um, 94, you're right. Yeah, I'm just I'm just seeing. Okay, so these two boys, they're college age. Um, they've just graduated, actually. And so one is called Heath Bullard. He's 23. One is called David Smith, 25. Um, so they leave, they, they leave to set off on a road trip. They're going from Pennsylvania through Texas, and they're going to end up in Arizona, where David would fly home. He's a painter. And Heath would start a student teaching job at a school. So they were looking forward to this road trip, um, but it descended into a a nightmare. Um, So they were driving in their car and they reach Arkansas when they believe that a convoy of vehicles are behind them, following them. And um, they say that it's uh, cars, it's tractors, it's trailers. And... They carry on driving and they, they're they trying to cross borders. But as they get to state lines, they say that this group of up to 30 vehicles are pushing them back into the same state. At a couple of points along this journey, they stop and they speak to cops and they say, uh, we're being followed by this group of vehicles. So the first time they do it and the cop says, can you can you point them out to me? So they point, and the cop says um, they've got local plates, so they're local people, and just laughs. So they get back in the car, and they do it another time, and they again nobody takes any notice of them. Well, I'm trying to think which border it is they get to. They get to one border, and they're just about to cross. They've driven 250 miles nonstop at this point, and I believe it's the Texas border. And they say that they get right to the edge of the state line and they get boxed in by this 30 long line of vehicles so they're forced to go back again and 
This time, I think they get to the Tennessee border. By now, it's getting dark. They're close to running out of gas, but they carry on driving. Now, at this point, they say that two cars um, that looked like cop cars, they say, chase them into a field and force them off the road. So they go into a field and their vehicle gets stuck. Well, they've got all these cars behind them. So they get out of the car and run for their lives because they say they're being chased now on foot. So they end up going into a creaky, swampy, woody area. Well, um, Heath can't swim, but David decides the only way he can escape is by diving into the creek. Well, Heath can hear them all coming and he takes his boots off because he says they're going to make too much noise. Well, he runs and eventually he hides and he hides in the swamp for the whole night. And he's terrified that they're going to find him because he says the pursuers are using bird calls to communicate with each other. So all night he can hear them getting closer, not quite finding him, and he's terrified. Well, by now the other boy is in the water, and at one point he's swimming down river, and a man who's fishing in a boat sees him because he's clinging to a log, and he says, can I help you? And the boy says no, because he's frightened that they're one of the, this group of people as well. Uh-huh. So eventually he gets out of the water, and he makes his way after walking miles to a farm where he finds a woman who gives him food, offers him a shower. She even goes as far as saying, I'll drive you to the airport. So he's obviously said, I need to get out of here. So he takes off, gets a plane, goes back home. In the meanwhile, what's happened to David? Well, David says that his pursuers shot pellets at him. Um, He ended up being captured and he was taken by them to this tiny church in the middle of nowhere. Now, this church was later corroborated by the local sheriff as existing. And he says he was held captive by them whilst they slaughtered pigs and sheep. Men and women and children were part of the group. He said he sees decomposing human heads in the trees and they rub the animal blood all over him. But somehow he manages to break free and escape. And again, he goes for miles. He ends up at a farmhouse but it's empty. He breaks in. He calls his girlfriend. She phones the police. In the meantime, he has something to eat and drink. And then he goes into the garage and he's picked up a knife by this point to wait for the police to come. Well, unfortunately, the home, the farmhouse is owned by the sheriff who arrives in an unmarked police car. But The boy has actually lost his contact lenses by now and hasn't got his glasses. So he approaches the cop holding a knife out. And of course, the cop Mm. arrests him, takes him to the police station and then to hospital. So the police don't believe a word that he's telling them. The hospital deny that he even got there. And fast forward one year later, he's now in a mental institution clutching a Bible and telling his mum that he can't go back there. He can't go back, whatever happens. Because the police in that jurisdiction have decided to prosecute him for assaulting the police officer or attempting to with a deadly weapon and um, stealing from the farmhouse. And the boy says, I can't go back. I will have a nervous breakdown. And his mother says, well, I do believe something happened because he wasn't a religious person. Now he won't stop reading the Bible. It gives him some kind of comfort. I know something happened to him, but he won't tell me what it was. The two boys, because one of them flew home and left the other one basically yeah. <laughs> in the swamp. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was... <laughs> yeah. 
they, but they didn't have a chance to confer. So the local newspaper followed this story when it got to the stage a year later that it was going to go to, 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 you know, they were going to prosecute the boy. They they reported on it for days and days. So the two boys didn't have a chance to corroborate the story. Neither of them had any drugs or alcohol in their system. And one of them said, well, look, you can say that we were tired, we were dehydrated, um, we hadn't slept. You can say all of that. You can say we were hallucinating. But how did we get the same story? How did we, how did we both say the same story when we didn't have a chance to corroborate? Um, the local sheriff said, yes, that church exists. He also said, well, you know, we've heard things about cults, but I mean, only little things. So, you know, they were just laughing. And it sounds like the most ridiculous story. And yet, they never changed it. Right. And also, they kind of said, the families said, look, you know, they're being ridiculed. Why would they make something like this up? One of them ends up in a mental institution. He was going to be a teacher. They got nothing to gain by making this story up. And yet it's so preposterous at the same time. Right. I, I think the most weird part for me, well, the whole thing's weird, but the odd part is the 30 cars that kept falling. I know. Yeah. Well, that and the, um, if it had all taken place in one small town with one sheriff department, yeah, it would be a lot easier for, for me to, yeah. to buy into their whole story. But the fact that it happened over like the course of a state, you know, with <laughs> distance separating it in two different police departments, denying it, like it, it, that's, it starts to be a little bit too big of a conspiracy there. It's, I mean, it's so much easier to believe that they just took a little too much of the wrong kind of drugs. And yeah, but they were tested. They yeah. they were tested for drugs. Yeah, but there's, there's I, hallucinogenics I you can't be tested for, though. Oh, uh, okay. Because that really, honestly, sounds like just it. It sounds like some really heightened paranoia. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but then again, there's other weird elements too, like the hospital and the police. Some somewhere in there, the story changed. Like the hospital denied it, but then they didn't deny it. But then, which that's kind of weird too. And like, yeah, yeah. And like the police didn't believe the story, and they actually did send him back. I think in '95 to mm. uh, I think it was Lauderdale County. I think, and they sent him back. They sent him back, and I guess that they gave him some kind of probation or slap on the wrist, and sent him back to Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. 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 But just but but just bizarre, and the whole the whole cult aspect of it too, like uh, and the guy that was on the boat even testified and said, yeah, he saw him in the water and and asked him if he needed help. Well, the the police yeah. said that's how they spurred this uh, search party because yeah. he came forward and he was like, I saw some guy in the river and he refused help. We should probably go look <laughs> yeah. for him. Right, right, right. <laughs> 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 it's just crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, one of the cops said, one of the sheriffs said, "Well, you can tell the but when they abandon the vehicle in the field, his only answer was, well, you can tell him it's fifty bucks a day to come and get his stuff.'" Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you have to wonder if they just got really paranoid, <laughs> and. <laughs> Then somehow ended up in the hands of a real cult. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> it almost it, it, there's so much of it that just defies belief. But the yeah, the story not- the story is there regardless. It, it, <laughs> I know. Crazy. Uh, well, 
um, something happened to me as a child, but I was a child, so that's excusable. But my dad used to play cricket every weekend, and it was yeah. in a place that was really countrified. And at the back of the cricket field was this lake that people used to go fishing on. So one day, all of us kids were out on the towpath in the woods where the lake was. And one of us, not me, but one of them said, oh, my God, he's got a gun. So we just went, oh, my God. I remember I tore my jeans open because I was scaling a, a barbed wire fence trying to get away, thinking that I was going to be killed. And um, we ran across the cricket pitch, which, of course, is not the dumb thing when they're having a match. And we all ran screaming, <laughs> our blood pouring down my legs. It was his fishing rod, wasn't it, yeah. that he was carrying? We thought it was a rifle. I mean, we don't even have guns in England, but... You know, one of us said it. The rest right. of us just got so paranoid. <laughs> yeah, it could all just be perception, possibly. Uh, yeah. Maybe he did come onto that church, and maybe well, that's what I'm saying. I think they totally believe their story. I mean, yeah. looking at the aftermath and everything, but they were together for a lot of it, so they could have built each other up. And right, right, and it's possible. <laughs> it's possible being from Pennsylvania. And then if he was, if they were, if they were on something, if they taken the brown acid, <laughs> just for, just say that they did, maybe that he, that he did get somewhere, he got to this church and they don't know kind of the local customs and people are really weird and he's tripping balls and <laughs> whatever he interpreted it as being, they may have been trying to help him. And then he was like, oh, there are heads in the, in the trees. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just trying to explain it <laughs> in a way that makes sense. Yeah. But if I, it was a trip, what a trip. Yeah, to, really. Ugh. Yeah. It's oh, true. How frightening. <laughs> <laughs> what are the, in that same chapter, you also talk about the Hosanna Church. And this is something mm. that happened, I believe, 12 years ago now. Um, and I myself had not really heard a lot about it. I kind of heard it in news reports and maybe a couple of other people talking about it on podcasts. What made you want to write about that? Because that's uh, that goes into some things that we've actually talked about on the show too, like about the satanic panic element to things, and which we're kind of seeing coming back now with the Pizzagate stuff. If you've you know if mm, you've been paying attention mm. to any of that, I have. Yeah, the reason I wanted to write about it was because. Um, I was looking into the couple of the books I've written about the college boy drowning cases. I was looking into some symbology that I'd come across something and the only thing it reminded me was of something in True Detective series one, you know, the Woody Harrelson and right. um, Matthew McConaughey, which was an amazing, you know, amazing show. And uh, so I had to rewatch the program to try and find this. I had this connection in my head. I was trying to trying to put things together. And as a result of that, it made me think, hold on, wasn't that based on a true story? Did some research on the internet. Oh, okay, so it was based on this case in Hosanna. And that's I thought, hold on, let me just let me look into that one. Yeah, because I didn't know about it, and that's how it kind of led me to it, really. Um but it was it, it was a case that happened in uh, ninety-nine and it carried on for about five, four, four years when all of a sudden a reverend of a really tiny church walked into the sheriff's office um, in um, Hosanna, uh, Pan I'm terrible, Ponchatula, Ponchatula yeah, that's, dis district. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. 
Right, okay. And he walked into the sheriff's office and he said, um, I just need to tell you some things. And he sat down really calmly. And it was just a living nightmare what the sheriff heard. He talked about dedicating a baby to Satan and all this ritualistic stuff that had been going on in his little church, of which there was only probably, I don't know, less than 30 members. So... I tell you also, the, the connection with the true detective, of course, because there was that scene in the film, the black and white film that they, they watched, where yeah. the they were wearing these horrible masks. Mm-hmm. Well, in this church where this supposed satanic abuse was going on, this pastor said that they used to wear these masks in which to carry out the abuse. So it turned out it, it turned out to be true, and this pastor was actually abusing his own sons, um, although they said he was, and then they retracted it. But several members of this group were, including the deputy sheriff, was arrested at one point, and it was true that they were carrying out these these rituals. The thing was, the prosecutor. Um, no, sorry, the defender for for the accused said that they played down the ritualistic side of it because they knew that people just, just laugh it off or just say, that's ridiculous. And he said, well, actually, abusing kids is bad enough, so let's go with that. Forget the uh, satanic stuff. We'll get them on this anyway, so let's keep it serious. Um, the police found all sorts of things in a... Um, a, a a storage unit at the back of the church because the neighbours said that they'd painted the windows out so you couldn't look in the church and they had actively tried to sort of discourage people joining. And the pastor himself said that in his confession, he said, um, well, we used to put these masks on and he said, I used to have hair. And the sheriff said, what do you mean hair? And it seemed to be that he had some kind of animal hair. And he described himself as shifting, almost like he got possessed into some kind of animal when he was doing it. But you can say, well, he's trying to pass the blame on to, you know, being possessed. And he blamed a member of the congregation for telling them to write down all their sins. And it kind of grew from there and they acted out their imaginary sins and, and that she had this spell casting ability and that she held them in their thrall. And she'd been the one that had done it, you know. But there was... There was prosecutions. Um, in fact, they were going for the death penalty at one point, and I think that they couldn't get that. Um, so the pastor and, and several of the congregation are now in prison for it. But they used to dress up in masks to carry out this this abuse. Um, but it was played down at the trial because they thought, well, it's not going to be taken seriously, you know. Um, but but that was why I put it in there because it kind of I was kind of looking down the true detective route, and it, it just. Yeah, you could know, you think, oh, surely that could have, that couldn't happen, and oh, okay, maybe it could. Yeah, there was a lot of that uh, case that True Detective drew on. I mean, even the setting of Louisiana itself, um, I, it, it, it's disturbing stuff. I mean, I, I think in my mind, what I, where I kind of go to is where do you come from being like a Christian church to worshiping Satan? I mean, where do you make that? Where do you make Change. that leap? <laughs> I, I know. It's just uh, ridiculous. Uh, uh, it's just crazy. It, 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 it's just crazy stuff. And what do you think about um, some of the other cases, like just uh, like the satanic pa- panic cases? Have you looked at any of that stuff, like the McMartin preschool case? Uh, 
here in, in the States. And I, I know that there's some things like uh, over there in the UK, um, I think David Icke talks about this a lot. The, um, oh, is it Jersey Island? One of the, mm. one of the crown islands that is, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, there's like a pedophile ring. And of course you guys have, you know, the whole Jimmy Savile thing over there, yeah. which was shocking. Yeah. Um, the Jersey thing, um, yeah, is, is alleged to involve an ex-prime minister of ours. Yeah. Um, was it Heath? And parts of London. So yeah. they're kind of connected. And, you know, the idea that Jimmy Savile was on the boat and he... Uh, I mean... The problem is, um, we, we had a really long police investigation in the last couple of years, and they arrested some really high-profile people. Um, now, what's done some damage to that is that some of the witnesses were known to have mental problems and were known to create abuse stories. So the police finally looked into it, yeah. and it's still ongoing. And there's a, And we've also had a problem in that the high, I think the sort of a high court judge who's been brought in to investigate, we've had about three quit in a row. So they keep quitting and it doesn't, doesn't get done. But whether or not there's any truth in it is so difficult to know because the police did the right thing and they, you know, arrested all these people and, and went through all their houses and everything. But Unfortunately, the most predominant witnesses were not reliable. So, and yet there are probably hundreds of other witnesses as well that do say they were abused. So yeah. it's impossible to really know the truth or to get to the bottom of it. And of course, there's all these allegations and there probably is some truth to some of it, but I, I don't know what the truth is right now because it's all still ongoing. I mean, Jimmy Savile, yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. People said it for years, but nobody um, nobody took any notice. The general public just thought he was really creepy, um, but didn't, I don't think, necessarily knew anything about what he was really doing. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just look at that guy and you just kind of like, there's something wrong there. And, and there was well, also that famous interview that... Uh, uh, Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols gave in 1978, mm-hmm. where he said that, you know, um, that uh, Savile was into all kinds of shady things. And, you know, uh, so people knew, I think, that we're in the establishment or, or it was just kind of gossip that was in the air. But once he died, it all came out. And I think that was probably by design as well. I mean, one of the creepiest things is that he lived in an apartment in Leeds and at the time of the Yorkshire Ripper, not the Victorian one, but the more modern one in the 70s, and he was going around attacking mainly prostitutes at night, hitting them with a hammer and killing them. And at the time, Jimmy Savile had a, a flat that overlooked a park in Leeds, and the police actually interviewed him and questioned him over the Yorkshire Ripper cases and even took impressions of his teeth because a body, one of the bodies, was found in the park. Now, that's not to say that Jimmy Savile had anything to do with it. I don't think he did. But then there's that famous picture of him shaking hands with the Yorkshire Ripper in the mental hospital. And he used to have an apartment in the mental home there and just roam the wards at night, roam all the hospitals at night Mm -hmm. and go down to the morgue. I mean, He was a seventh son of a seventh son. I think he was a necromancer. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, 
I, th- there was all kinds of weirdness, and and then the the uh, just the connections that he had. I mean, into the royal family, into the, uh, the people of power, actors, musicians, all the all those connections. I mean, the guy. I, I think there's so much more to it than anybody's ever going to know. But also, with the thing about him maybe having some kind of occult power. It's almost as though he had a, the ability to charm people, you know? Yeah. To, to get into the circles he got into. Somehow he, he charmed people as well. So so even even those who didn't know what he was doing, everybody was just taken completely by him. Right. And, and to say something, too, about like kind of like the, some of the unreliability of, of witnesses at certain points... Um, there's there's uh, this whole idea of the witnesses saying things that don't make any sense. Uh, like in the McMartin preschool case, if you're familiar with that one, that was... Uh, On the military base in San Diego. Uh, uh, this was... Well, this was in Los Angeles, I think. Um, uh, this was a, a preschool where they accused them of satanic rituals and taking them... Down to taking the kids down to tunnels underneath the preschool, mm. which is very similar to what you're hearing with the comet ping pong stuff with Pizza mm. Day now. But the kids would say all this stuff, but then talk about all these satanic rituals. But then they also would say stuff like Chuck Norris was involved, and so oh. the, the the testimony of the kids wasn't always reliable, and that they were making things up. Yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, I see what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so. Let's uh, let's move on to another story in the book, and this is the Janet, the Geraldine Largy disappearance, and this is similar, I think, to the first two. Uh, it has some weird aspects to it as well, uh, with this woman that disappeared on the Appalachian Trail. Hmm. Yeah. So, a lady, um, she she'd set out. Geraldine set out to cover the. 1,165 miles um, of the Appalachian Trail um, back in 2013. Well, she was an experienced hiker. So although she was in her, I think it was 60s, but she was a very experienced hiker. And in fact, she set out on a a practice run of of a 200-mile hike. And she'd planned every part of the trip so infinitesimally with spreadsheets. You know, everything was planned. Um, so she took off with a female friend, but the female friend was called back home because of a family crisis, and Geraldine decided to carry on alone. Well, by this stage, they'd already been on the trail for nine weeks, and, and nothing had happened. Everything was fine. So she thought she would be okay, and in fact, later, much later when her, her body was found, she still had some water, um, but she disappeared on this trail. Um now, she was about, I think it was eight miles from Spalding Mountain, and she'd spent the night in a lean-to, as she had planned to. She was then going to hike for another 13 or so miles, and she was going to meet her husband, who'd driven to meet her there. Well, he waited for her in his car, and by the afternoon of that day, she hadn't arrived. So he waited, so he slept the night in the car, but the next day... He was concerned and he saw a passing police car, so he stopped and that's how the search started. Well, 
The searchers obviously first checked the trail that she was known to have been on and expanded it by about 100 feet on either side of the trail. Well, it was in a very thick, thickly forested area. Um, there were small roadways, stream beds. The, the search turned out to be the lar- largest in history in that state. And they actually covered 30 miles with an enormous number of volunteers and trained search and rescue and the search lasted for seven days with dogs horses and also helicopters but they couldn't find a trace of her well her her son-in-law said um if something had happened to her on the trail she would have stayed put she 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 wouldn't have gone on and on she would have she would have stayed she was sensible there was a mystery phone call a woman phoned and claimed um she phoned a ranger station and claimed that she was giving a message from the missing woman to give to her husband to say that she would not be um, meeting him at the prearranged rendezvous. Well, despite uh, subsequently a lot being made of this mysterious caller, um, a park spokesman has clarified that actually there was a mix-up in the message. So they're saying, and the police say, well, Yes, there was a message, but it didn't relate to this missing woman at all, and it's got mixed up in the in the newspaper reporting. Um, hmm. So, her husband stayed there looking for her for two weeks, um, but there was absolutely no sign of her. Well, fast forward to two years later, and her body is found. So, she's three miles from where she'd last been known to have been walking, and it was about a 10-minute walk from um, a dirt trail that that would have led her to a road. The rescuers were said to have given the reason as to why they didn't find her for it being in a very, very difficult area to get into. That's what they, that was what was told to the newspapers, which sounds reasonable, of course, but the thing was, well, how then did they discover her three years later? So, it, it couldn't have been that difficult to get into. Um, and in fact, when it got out into the newspapers, people who knew the area said, well, this area was really well signposted. It was like a super highway, you know, and you'd meet the same hikers day after day if they were on the trail. You know, there's a lot of people around. And it was presumed that she'd gone off the trail to um, go to the bathroom and she wouldn't have wanted to do it on the trail, you know, to have some privacy. Um but she wouldn't have gone for miles off the trail. That that was, you know, the, the presumption. And they said that the reason that the dogs couldn't find her was because she was inside her tent. Yeah. I, I mean, I would have thought that wouldn't make any difference. Yeah, you know, because dogs either. can, yeah. yeah, dogs can trace um, scents in car parks through, you know, um, concrete concrete barriers and things. So right. I don't know. Um, anyway, and and the sad thing is, of course, that. When she was found inside her tent, she'd been alive for over 20-odd days. But she'd been presumably in that area. So if she'd been able to be walking around for, let's presume, at least a few days because she had water left, then why couldn't they find her? Um, Well, some researchers um, added a little bit to the story in a way, which is possibly a bit too conspiratorial, really, but... Um, the area that she was found in was actually also part of Navy land and it was used as a, a Navy survival skills training facility 
um, and the use specifically was survival, evasion, resistance and escape. So it's a program run by the Navy, but actually you can be a private contractor and go on the course. So you could be, you know, a mercenary and, and go on the course. Um, so uh, local, a local researcher, I try and remember his name, had done the research and said, well, actually she was found on this part of the land and, you know, is it coincidence that people were running around on that land, you know, practicing being captured and tortured and held in this detention centre to try and resist interrogation and torture and did this have something to do with it? You know, that was a kind of theory and he looked into whether that part of the land had been searched at all because it was owned by the, the Navy, not the National Parks. Well, spokesman's for this facility um one at first said well actually no training was going on that week and then another spokesman said well actually um lights were um seen on the training facility and um helicopters had flown over and seen the lights on as well so the presumption is that training was going on um but is it taking things a bit too far that you know, something mysteriously happened to her because she was on this Navy land where people were training in uh, getting kidnapped and <laughs> held and tortured and things. Because, uh. of course, she didn't have any, any. presumably, she didn't have any marks on her or anything. Um, so I, I don't know if that's taking things a little too far. Um, but, of course, the real mystery is, is still, well, if she was still found only 3,000 feet away, how come nobody could find her? And in fact, Animal Planet, I think it was, did a TV shoot and seemed to come across her body. Um, so if they could reach her tent, how yeah. was it that inaccessible? Um, yeah. You know, so I think I think the I don't really think the Navy survival rescue thing has necessarily really got anything to do with it. But the odd thing is, you know, she had water left, um, and 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 she wasn't found miles away. She was in that area, so. I, I don't know. It's just a bit strange, isn't it? Yeah, it's very strange. And the the phone call that they think that that was just a coincidence. Uh... Well, the police and the the police and the park service both said no. That was nothing to do with with her. Um, because at first, I know when she'd gone missing, a lot of focus was on well, who was this woman, and did it have anything to do with her husband? And you know, um, it was a message was given via a hotel manager to give to her husband. So something I think perhaps was lost in translation or there's something more to it. I, I don't know. Hmm. Weird. Uh, yeah. It's, it does, that really, that whole thing just made no sense unless she just wanted to die. Uh, but it seems like she had kept these journals and mm. it doesn't seem like that was the case. No, so, it doesn't. No, no. It's very unexplainable. Uh, I want to talk about something in the time that we have left that's not in the book, but uh, this is uh, something I heard you talking about on another show, and this is interesting. This is about the painter Modigliani and some of this association and some of his pictures that show black-eyed people. And I have seen these. I have seen some of these, and that literally his paintings – show some of them most of them have the like the just the, the full black eyes kind of like the black eyed kids that we now hear about all the time mm. well i came across this one because i was 
trying to research the black eyed kids and trying to come at it, I suppose, with something that other than a sighting in the woods or in a street or something, I was just trying to find something, you know, solid about it. And to be honest, I don't know how solid this is because it took me months and months to go into and the diary exists, but I'm not sure what's in it. Um, so it's a bit of a mystery. Um, what happened was I found in the course of the research a another researcher called Dante Sartori who has this YouTube channel and it's hardly been watched at all. And the videos that he's made are extremely beautiful. They're very artistic and they go on for a very long time. So you have to watch for hours to get to what the story is. But he seems to say, and I've spoken to him, he says that um, he was a special forces soldier. He's Italian, but he's always been fascinated with um, Modigliani and this link to the black eyed kids that I'd never heard of. And he was desperate to get his hands on the diary of the artist's mother. So Modigliani, one of his paintings sold in 2005. It was the second most expensive painting ever sold. So he was a massively famous artist, you know, now. Um, and as you say, the paintings, several of them have got jet black eyes. And so Dante had been trying to find out more about Modigliani and the reason for these black eyes. He knew that there was a diary written by his mother when, when Amadeo was a child. Well, his mother had supposedly written in this diary that she wanted to get the young boy away from the influence of her, her father, her own father and the family because she was writing that they, the grandfather and the uncle were becoming too attached to the young boy who was about two years old and he was being taken to their temple but not their temple. So she says he's being taken to a temple but not our temple. Well, the grandfather who lived with them was... Um, probably a 33rd degree mason which in itself is not sinister but there were suggestions that he had some links to the illuminati in the town itself where they lived which was liverno it was weird because there were 18 masonic lodges which was over half the total number of italy completely so it was very heavily populated with with temples there for some reason um well so Eugene, the mother, wants to get him away because she also writes that she she said she doesn't want him involved with these people with the soulless eyes. So perhaps you can say, OK, well, is she talking about the grandfather and these lodges and the, this sort of influence or there is there more to it? Well, you find out more to it because when they go away, they do a sort of tour of, of Italy. So her and her son and she starts to write more in the diary and she says that um she says that uh, she there's um, a, a ufo flap going on at the same time and it's called the lights of berberero this is mm. 1901 and she says that these lights seem to be following them so they've seen these lights up in the sky and amadeo the little boy is fascinated by them and she says that she's seen him outside at night and she's talking to he's talking to someone when these lights appear, he's talking to them. And she said, hey, I found him walking in the garden and I heard him laughing and talking. And then she says, they've moved to Venice. And she said, 
I know now what I'm seeing. I have seen them and I'm not going mad. And I know that Amadeo talks to them at night. Mm. And another time she says, I've been sitting outside his room all night. Just before sunrise, I heard a voice saying, paint us, paint us. So, Mm. you know, the suggestion is that there's lights in the sky. Dante Sartori says there there were abductions going on at that time. And then we've got the idea that these things with the black eyes are appearing to this little boy and saying, you know, paint us. Well, then she writes, um, we must return home now. She said, I know they're part of his life now, maybe even more than myself. And these deep black eyes, they're young. They're so young. They're his age. They're even younger. So she seems to be saying that there are these little, little children around him. Well, it's possible that that's what has led him to paint them but that's also an allegation that can't be proven um so i thought well let's have a look at his life and who he was because it does seem that um his grandfather was quite well taught in the um that they were sephardic jews and they were quite heavily taught in the talmud and the grandfather's father actually had a school where he would teach this. And when I looked into that, I mean, again, being a novice in all of this, I, I found that actually there is quite quite a bit of magic in, in these practices. And although it was forbidden to be practiced, it was actually learnt by a lot of people, such as judges, because they said that when they came across people who did practice this magic – they would have to be as well-versed in it as they were to, to know what they were dealing with it. And I read some more uh, sort of texts on it, which sort of say, well, they, they, they did use magic and uh, scholars could even turn people to dust, you know, because they were so prolific and so learned in it. And so you think, well, okay, maybe there's something that was going on in terms of magic. And Several of the people in his family did seem to have mystical interests. And he himself was a boy. Um, at one point, he was 12 years old and he, he wrote down, he said, um, he'd, he'd put two skulls um, on a bookcase and he'd written and described um, that the woman's skull was a symbol of love and its destructive power. And the man's skull was a patriarch but it was a male succubus. And he said, that's what they often are, uh, presumably meaning a demon. And I thought, well, that's quite a deep thing for a 12-year-old to say, because I don't know, normally you'd say that sort of thing. Well, as he got older, he used to say how he had these, um, you know, sort of great surges of power within him and they would sort of take over him. Well, that could also be an artistic um, expression, you know. But if you look more about who he was surrounded by in his older life, um, he was quite involved with um, an occultist and an astrologer. And he, he painted this occultist quite often. Well, I looked at other researchers' comments about him and what they'd found out. And they sort of said, well, in some of his art, he was leaving Illuminati symbols and motifs. Um, he didn't do that in the majority of his, his art, I don't think. But in some of the sketches, it suggested that he'd he'd been looking at... There's something called the three Talmudic aspects, and he had written and put a symbol on one of the drawings called Tetaprofil that seemed to be 
displaying this code about the body-soul connection or is it the three stages of Freemasonry or is it the Talmud that he's talking about? Um, he had a patron called Paul Alexandre who was a physician and he had written um, letters about Modigliani talking about how he seemed to be leaving codes and although nobody could really understand it, it did to him show that he had an interest in the esoteric and in working in, in metaphysics. And so several researchers always came up, with, also came up with the idea that maybe he was delving. Uh, one used to say he'd go and embrace uh, his statues at night. And, you know, th there was talk that his grandfather used to be an adept in magic and spells. And one thing that I also thought was really strange was that he was known for being able to recite the uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, which can't hmm. be easy to recite um, by heart. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but he would stand up and just recite great verses of it. And huh. so people used to say how weird that was. And of course, there, there's also an uh, unaccredited piece of art that another researcher has said has clearly got demons and flying creatures and symbols that he says were clearly Illuminati. So the suggestion is then that he was like Leonardo uh, da Vinci, leaving these clues for people to sort of see if they were they were in in the know. Um, but it's it's a complete mystery because he did have a very mystical life. Um, he died at a young age, and thirty five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 I know that the diary exists. But I can't trace it. And in fact, I, I don't think I said, did I? But the story about how this researcher, Dante, got hold of the diary is, is baffling enough as well, because it seemed to be in the hands of a mob boss at one point in mm. the south of France. And he used to go to the mob boss's house to look at the diary. Um, and he could go to the house anytime he wanted. So there's so many strange aspects to it again. Yeah, yeah. That... Um once again kind of that weird just link between the occult and the supernatural beings and yeah yeah i i that was this very fascinating story um <clears throat> well steph we're about running out of time but uh real quick tell everybody where they can get your books and also you're going to have a show that is going to come on the D program network, which we're also on and tell us a little bit about that as well. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. <laughs> Put you on the spot there. I know I'm so excited, but I just can't think, I can't decide what name to use. So <laughs> it's, I don't know what the name is going to be called, but it is going to be on deprogrammed radio like yours is. I'm so honored to have been asked. I think I'm just overwhelmed by it really. But what I'm aiming to do is, probably very similar to what I've just done tonight, as professionally as I can, just talk about these really strange cases, you know, and uh, sure. and that's it really. Um, I, I'm probably going to have some very interesting guests on as well, and we'll be looking at some really odd mysteries, um, as well as the supernatural, so kind of like we've done tonight, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, and where can people get the books? Oh, on Amazon. Um they should probably under Stephen, so S T E P H E N Young. Um, pretty, soon, yeah, they're you, pretty, pretty soon, you might uh, you might beat Nick Redfern on number of books. 
<laughs> you know, I'd love to meet him, actually. I don't know him personally, but I think his yeah. work's great. Yeah, he's very prolific, isn't he? He's yeah, great. Nick yeah. is something. We've had him on the show a few times. Although oh. not last year. We need, to, we need to rectify that for 2017. Yeah, it's been too long. Rob, I love his interviews. You, anything that you wanted to add or... Um, I did want to ask real quick. I forgot when we were talking about it, but the in the Rendlesham Forest case, the the photograph that he had sent you is that available anywhere online? Or I have a feeling that he may have put it on a group, a Rendlesham Forest group, which I I can get onto. So I'll send you the link for it for the group, okay. and it probably is on there. I have a feeling, so I'll send you that. Awesome, that'd be great. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Well, Steph, thank you so much. We're going to have to do this again. There's so much to talk about and definitely going to have you back on. Uh, well, hold on the line for us. Uh, we are going to close out this section. And guys, we will be back to talk a little bit about the beginning of 2017 on Normal. Here we are, Rob. Here we are indeed. It is a few hours later after the interview, and it is now 2017. It's one lunchtime and a plumbing crisis later. Yes, you did have a plumbing crisis. <laughs> right in the middle of the interview, there was a backed up toilet. Yeah, it's all good. It's better now. Yeah, this is, this is, this is the life that we lead, man. You know, it's, it's, it's not always glamorous. We we don't always have the we, we we don't have the assistants out there to unplug the toilet. We make the uh, what are the intern do it? Yeah, we do need an intern. <laughs> well, we don't get paid anyway, so. right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how was your New Year's and everything? How did how did how did you ring in twenty seventeen? Um. Well, I had some good friends over. I believe you were one of them. I was one of them. Yes. Um. And we hung out here in the studio and drank and played some music, uh, jammed a little bit with on the new drum kit. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, that's right. You bought your daughter a new drum kit. Yeah. I think I play it more than she does, but that's okay. <laughs> Did you really buy it for her or was it more of a Christmas gift for yourself? No, I, I really bought it for her, but <laughs> if I didn't know in the back of my mind that if she didn't want it, I'll still enjoy it. I, I yes. wouldn't have, I wouldn't have yes. splurged. So. That, that that is a good way to look at it. A good way to look at it. So, what are your impressions of this year so far? The whole week that we've had. Well, <laughs> cold. Yes. I don't know. Extremely it's, cold. We just got some snow the, the, in the last couple of days. Yeah, it's going to be. I mean, you know, it's going to be an interesting year coming up on an inauguration here pretty pretty quick. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, we are, sir. Then we'll see. Yeah. Well, I want to save anything about like uh, looking back on Obama or anything about that for the next show because next time we're going to do our first romper room, uh, which is actually going to be later on tonight for us, but everybody else will hear it in about a week. Um, yeah. So we have begun the year, and already there has been an incident that has occurred. 
Everybody doesn't know in Chicago over the last, what was this? I think this was on Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday that I first heard about this was this incident where this kid was apparently abducted by these other kids. It was four, uh, it was four black teenagers or one, three teenagers and one adult in their twenties. And apparently they had this white kid that had special needs, uh, is what they said was being, they said that they abducted him and tied him up and streamed the video live on Facebook. This is how we begin the year of 2017. So here we are, uh, an incident right out the gate. And there was another incident, which I'll talk about soon, but I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, this seems to be fairly cut and dry. There are a little think of weird things that are going on with this, that maybe it's not so, as they're saying that it is, I do agree that it, that it is a hate crime and should be treated as such. Uh, that was a huge, big debate over the, um, over the time that it happened. Um, I want to read this. Uh, this kind of goes into the little bit of, little bit of the case here. Um, do new details on disabled man in Chicago torture video emerge. And it's a heartbreaking twist. After the parents of a special needs man had reported their son missing to the Streamwood Police Department on January the 2nd, they found themselves having to witness one of their worst nightmares in a now-deleted Facebook Live video. Their son, whose identity is under protection, suffers from schizophrenia and a severe attention deficit disorder. He was kidnapped at the Chicago suburbs McDonald's on New Year's Eve by four teens and was tortured for over six hours. The victim was bound, beaten, sliced on his scalp, burned with cigarettes, and forced to drink from a toilet. One of the men charged, one of the women charged, 18-year-old Brittany Covington, who also goes by Brittany Herring, by the way, posted a Facebook Live video of herself and three others kicking the victim, pulling him up by his neck binding, spitting on him, and flicking cigarette ash over the wound on his head. Someone is also heard yelling, F Donald Trump, F white people. Police found the victim reportedly wearing shorts in the dead of winter, walking around the neighborhood where he had been held. Police said he was extremely disoriented and traumatized, but eventually led officials to the scene of his torture and pointed out the four suspects. All four individuals have been arrested. But as the victim is still unable to talk about the attack, he reportedly can only ask his family the same question over and over again. Janet Grant, the victim's paternal aunt, told the Daily Mail that her nephew continues to ask why his friend that he idolized did this to him. He just keeps saying, why, why? Jordan was my friend. He's been my friend for a couple of years. Some good friend there, right? Grant explained that one of the individuals charged with two hate crimes against her nephew, Jordan Hill, had gone to school with him for several years. They went to school together. They both had problems. He adores Jordan. I don't know Jordan, but my nephew really liked him. It's one thing if they didn't know each other, but my nephew idolized him. He thought he was cool. I think he was one of the popular ones at school. Her nephew's mother reportedly never had a good feeling about the two getting together. His mom didn't like him hanging out, but he would say, that's my friend, that's my friend, and he really looked up to Jordan. 
On top of physically assaulting the victim, according to police, Jordan also sent victims mother the victim's mother text messages demanding a three hundred dollar ransom to see her son again. Three hundred dollars. Wow. Really? Why well, not just thirty thousand or three hundred thousand? You know, thirty three hundred dollars. After his parents received the text, they went to the police, and that's when the Facebook video was discovered. Grant also told the Daily Mail how her nephew's situation made him even more vulnerable as a victim. He's got enough problems already. They put cigarette butts out on his head, cut a hole in his scalp. Once they took him to Chicago, he had no meds for four days. He couldn't even fight back. How could a woman watch that? They thought it was going to make them popular. Putting cigarette butts out on a kid with schizophrenia and ADD. She continued to say how incredibly devastating this will prove for the rest of his life. Physically, he'll heal, but mentally, he'll always be looking over his shoulder, probably won't trust anybody. The attack has so affected the victim and his family so badly that Grant doesn't think her nephew's father will be able to attend the defendant's first appearance hearing. I don't even know if my brother is going. Everyone is having a hard time dealing with it. Lastly, Grant stated that at this point, it's the answer to just one more question that matters to the family. It's not even about the punishment, just why. GoFundMe page has been set up to raise money for the victim and his family to prove to him that there is far more good in this world than the evil he experienced. Its original goal was $10,000, but people have given more than $82,000 to date. According to the Cook County State Attorney's Office, all four defendants were charged with two counts of hate crimes— Aggravated kidnapping, aggravated unlawful restraint, and aggravated battery. Three of them face charges of residential burglary. Jordan Hill faces additional charges as well. During the Friday hearing, a Chicago judge denied all four individuals bond, labeling them as a danger to society. It's unclear whether the family attended the hearing. So, I would like your impressions on this, because you told me you had not heard about this. No, I this is the first I've heard about it. Um, well, they're obviously not criminal masterminds. Yeah. I mean, you know, he texted from his number to the kid's mom to demand $300. Yeah. And somebody else had, like, you know, streamed it live on Facebook, which uh-huh. that's happened a few times in recent memory, too. Like, what? Why, why would people do that? Stream something that's obviously incriminating and illegal? Yeah. I mean, it's just... They, yeah. I wish they would go into the backstory a little bit. Like, because these kids were friends for a couple of years. And then obviously, I mean, there's some sort of, you know, Trump connection or racial connection or his, his parents voted for Trump and that triggered something or, you know what I mean? Well, see, yeah, there, there were a couple of things that I heard, first of all, was that this kid was an acquaintance of the kid that was the, the mentally challenged kid and when i say kids i mean they're really around around the ages of 18 19 years old i think uh the two boys and the girl are 18 and then her sister was 24 that her sister was living with and it was all there at her apartment uh it's very possible that the sister just wasn't watching what was going on and might you know she might have lesser charges than the others uh so but again, apparently they were acquaintances is what is what I heard. Now, according to this article that I just read, he, at least the mentally challenged kid felt that 
this kid was much more of a role model and much more of a friend than he thought he was. Um, from what I understand, he was dropped off at the at a McDonald's to wait for this Jordan Hill who came to pick him up in a stolen van. Okay. And apparently brought him back to this girl's house. Apparently this went on for about three or four days. They were hanging out with each other. And apparently drugs were also involved in this as well. Apparently they were all smoking. And what I've heard is that they were smoking some kind of cocaine laced marijuana or something like that. Who knows? And apparently also what I've also read is that there was a play fight that escalated and got out of hand and ended up with this mentally challenged kid being uh, tied up and gagged. And apparently then they started to cut pieces of his scalp off his head uh, forced him to drink out of the toilet and made him say things like F Donald Trump and F white people. Um, so <laughs> another thing that I heard, another thing that was said or implied is that somehow either they thought or this kid was a Trump supporter. And that's why they, did this, but from what I can gather and what I understand that they were at, they were, they were, they may have, they may have had some kind of, uh, bad intention to do to this kid, but however, they didn't do it for like two to three days and then things got out of hand and this happened. Sounds like this Jordan Hill had problems as well. If they were knew each other and they were in the same class, which we would assume would probably be like a special education class, that would stand to reason as well. So there might be some mental issues with that kid too. And then you put drugs in the mix and then apparently lack of medication for this other kid. Who who knows what can happen? Now, I'm not excusing what they did because once they crossed <clears throat> that line, it right. did turn into a hate crime and, I'm, and it was racially motivated. They said... F Donald Trump, F white people. And I don't care if they say F Donald Trump when they say F white people. That means there's obviously a bias or a hatred that they have towards towards white people and what they were doing to this kid. So yeah, they should get the hate charges. Chicago police did a hell of a job on this. Uh, and when the video came out, you had everybody commenting, they need to be charged with hate crimes. Oh, why haven't the cops done this? Well, the cops did a pretty good job of getting this sorted out. And within a day that that video, within a day that video hit and went viral, they were already charging these two, at least two of them with hate crime, with hate crimes charges. Good for them. That's what they needed to do. Plenty of people, black and white, were saying they need to be charged with hate crime. The guy, uh, they interviewed a community activist, a black guy that said, you that said uh, this was a hate crime. This was not a, this was not motivated by anything else but hate. But also too, at the same time, I think there was a little bit of something that, that got out of hand. 
uh, Montel Williams. You know who Montel Williams is, right? The oh, yeah. Talk show host from the 90s and I guess the early 2000s. Uh, let me look this up real quick. It was, he he said something that really that was important. And I'm going to look that up, but I want to make this point too about this, is that uh, uh, as far as the kidnapping charge, I don't know because it's kind of weird because the kid, the white kid met and went willingly and met them at the McDonald's and willingly got in this. Right. Well, the aggravated stolen unlawful restraint or whatever charge makes sense, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is what he said. Uh, and I thought this was very appropriate. Life in prison, no parole. I'm the Monte Williams. Life in prison, no parole. I'm not interested in whether these kids had a tough life, whether their parents loved them enough. I don't care. Whether this is a hate crime, is a distraction, and irrelevant. This is the cold-blooded torture of an innocent human being. That's bigger than a hate crime. It's bigger than racism. Saying F white people is racist by definition. It's bigger than politics. Life in prison, no parole. If you can do this to another human being once, you can't be trusted to not do it again. My prayers go out to the young man in this disgusting video. That's pretty powerful words. Yeah. That's pretty damning. But you have people that are actually trying to make excuses, and now we get into the political side of it. So let's play that clip that I sent you. I think it's about like a minute, a minute or so long. Four black teens under arrest in Chicago in connection with the beating of a white teen. The suspect shouting anti-Trump slurs as the attack was broadcast on Facebook Live. Let's discuss now with CNN political commentators Peter Beinert, Alice Stewart, and Matt Lewis. Also Simone Sanders, a former press secretary for Bernie Sanders. Okay, so listen. There's certain things that we, I, I can't say that it's a hate crime because Chicago police won't say it. They're saying they're still investigating it. They're not investigating, they, they're not done with their investigation. But when you look at this, Simone, they're saying uh, F white people, F Trump. How can you say it's not a hate crime against a white person? So first I want to say this is absolutely sickening. Uh, it's. It's unfathomable that so much hate and anger can fill up a person where they go out and they think that this is okay. And then it was stupid to do it on Facebook Live, but that's a whole nother story. So this is absolutely sickening, but I'm gonna say something that's probably not very popular. We cannot callously go about classifying things as a hate crime. Motive here matters. So was this for hate of Donald Trump, uh, the president-elect because of things that he has said, or was this for pure hate of white people? That matters because if we start going around and and anytime someone says something or does something really egregious, really bad and sickening in this instance in connection with the president-elect um, or Donald Trump or even President Obama for that matter because of their political leanings, mm -hmm. that is slippery territory. That is not a hate crime. Hate crimes are because of a person's racial ethnicity, their religion, their gender, a disability. It is in your political leanings because someone doesn't like your political okay. leanings and they do something bad to you. That is not a but hate Alice, crime. But Alice, even hate crimes, aren't all hate crimes motivated by stupidity? Okay. That's <clears> it <throat> um, for the clip. Well, I got to say there's definitely some truth to that statement. Especially in lieu of this whole um, major blog sites and internet companies banning hate speech. Um, 
you you know you got to be careful what you classify as hate speech at that point because it can turn into absolute censorship real quick or people being able to control censorship real quick yeah um and like she said you know i mean there are there have been ever since you know president obama got into office there's been a lot of um blurring the lines between um you know political views and and racism so it's it it's just it's a tricky thing to sort out but i think she's right in that it is something that needs to be looked at real carefully yeah um whether or not i agree that that's the case in this situation is different yeah i i i just think that i I just think that it's pretty cut and dry once you cross a line and i think that this was said um in another part of that same segment that they did on cnn with don lemon and of course you know he was not willing to say it was a hate crime simply because the fact that the chicago police uh had not had not said that it was yet um but they did the i think the very next morning they they put the charges onto the onto these kids um yeah so that but that being said i think it's pretty clear the motive uh whether donald trump is involved or not whether it's political or not once you cross the line into tying someone up and obviously doing it in a way that is humiliating towards that person and also screaming F white people. Right. And like you said, if it was just F Donald Trump. Yeah. Then. Right. I mean, even then though, even then though, that's political violence. I mean, that's, that's, which is, it's still, yeah. Violence acted out from hatred. That's just about this guy, (laughs) as bad as the guy who punched the, the black guy out at the, at the Trump rally. Back in uh, what was that like April or May of last year? I mean, it's just it, it's it's just as bad. It's still political. It's still political violence. So either way, you, either way you stretch it, but it becomes even worse when it's when there is a racial thing going on. And, and I agree with some of the other rhetoric that I have heard that has said that if it was reversed and this was a black kid being that if this was done by a black kid by a group of white kids. All holy hell would be breaking loose right now, and it's and it's true. And and this lady on on CNN would be she would be saying something completely different. She would be in it. She would be outraged by this, as she should be. But just trying to downplay it and say that it's just, that there's some kind of political motivation. Now I will say this. Uh, you know, I said back when Trump, where I right before the election, I said, you know, the the poisons that lurk in the mud are going to come out, and this is part of it. This is really part of it, and I'm not necessarily blaming Trump for it, but this is the backlash against some of the stuff that got started by that group. You're going to see more and more of this kind of thing. This is what's in the media. These kids are only reacting to what they see in the media. And with the rhetoric that they're hearing from Black Lives Matter and all these other groups. And by the way, uh, this got put on the internet by a lot of quote-unquote conservative blog sites as being Black Lives Matter being the ones that are doing the kidnapping. It had absolutely nothing to do with Black Lives Matter, but that was the hashtag that said hashtag BLM kidnapping. So there's another... You know, 
ostification of the truth and trying to bring from the other side, trying to bring politics into it as well. So right. then it just becomes political when it's just a group of stupid kids, stupid thugs doing this to this kid who probably in many ways probably was probably was high himself and was, and I'm not going to say that he was involved or that he had any fault of it, uh, any fault towards it, but it seems like this was something that just got completely and totally out of hand and became a huge shit show. And I think that's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, and before we go on, was anything else you wanted to say about this? Um, no, I, I mean, like I said before, I wish we knew more about the days leading up to it. Cause right. he was with them for a, a while before this all escalated into what it was, but right. not, not to lay blame on him, but you know, yeah. it's just, it's a, like you said, it's a sh- shitty situation, but you know, they're, they're being held accountable for their actions to the fullest. And I think that's, what's important. I, I, right. And they, as well, they should be. Right. And I, I saw someone blaming the ki- blaming the parent, the kid's parents for this, for dropping him off over there. But you know, at a certain point, when a kid is eighteen, schizophrenia or ADD or not, uh, they are legally not minors anymore, and you kind of have to let your kids make 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 choices. It would be totally different if he was fifteen, sixteen years old. But as an 18-year-old, it becomes a little harder to try to probably tell them no. Well, yeah, depending on how debilitating his his condition was. Right. Um, You know, if if he's dependent on them for, you know, for all his needs and for for care and everything, then it it is still their responsibility. Yeah. I, I think a lot of this will come out in the, in, in a trial. Uh, you're going to see as is their right with these people, there's going to be a defense. Uh, so you're going to see a defense that's probably going to say some of that stuff that I, that I just said, that this was a rough housing play fighting that got out of hand. Uh, this Jordan Hill is possibly, um, possibly has learning disabilities or some kind of mental incapacity himself. So how can we, we call, how can we blame him? You'll see that thing going on in the defense. So this, this whole thing, I don't think is over. We will keep our eye on it. Uh, second thing that happened this week, first week of 2017, and we've already had this and a shooting. Yay. In Fort La- in <clears throat> Fort Lauderdale where nine people died. And this one's interesting. Um, and I have a clip for this one as well. That, that is just, I don't, but I'm not going to make any judgment call at the moment on it. This is airport shooter said he was mind controlled by a U.S. intelligence agency, demoted and discharged Alaska National Guard private first class, an alleged killer of five people, alleged, I always love that. Of five people at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, Esteban Santiago, 26, may have been mind-controlled or mentally ill, according to FBI officials. Santiago, who, I don't know about the mind, where the FBI would admit that, but okay. 
This is from the freethoughtproject.com, so might be a little biased. Santiago, who was arrested in January and waiting to stand trial in March on criminal charges, recently showed up to an FBI office in Anchorage unannounced seeking help. Santiago told the FBI he thought he was being mind-controlled, possibly by the U.S. government or the CIA, and admitted hearing voices which Santiago had told him to study extremist materials on the Internet, the New York Times reported. Those extremist materials on the Internet would be ISIS uh, sites, by the way. Despite the fact that Santiago himself, his girlfriend, and even co-workers warned authorities of of his experiences, the FBI failed to detain him before his travels to Florida. Records show Santiago had three driver's licenses from Alaska, New York, and Puerto Rico, along with his military ID, which were all on his person during Friday's shooting, as reported by a local ABC News affiliate. Just like a Manchurian candidate, Santiago walked to the baggage claim area where witnesses said he pulled the trigger and appeared to be aiming at victims' heads. Witnesses said Santiago didn't say a word. He shot his weapon until he ran out of ammunition. He threw the gun down and laid spread eagle on the ground until a Broward Sheriff's Office deputy came up to him. So he just gave up. USA Today reports, yet the troubling episode is now part of an emerging profile of a deeply disturbed man described by his Aunt Friday as someone who had lost his mind. Maria Louise Ruiz of Union City, New Jersey, said her nephew, who had moved to Alaska for work as a security guard, only recently began to show signs of instability. Like a month ago, it was like he lost his mind, she said. He said he saw things. Additionally, it is also important to point out that former White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer was present at the airport during the shooting and was live-tweeting details about the situation. Meanwhile, an eyewitness to the actual event maintains that they caught the first guy. There had to be three sleepers, three other shooters. Meanwhile, Reuters reports that attention now turns to the shooter's motive. Federal investigators will, on Saturday, pursue all angles in determining the motive behind a mass shooting which an attacker opened fire in a crowded baggage claim area at Fort Lauderdale's airport, killing five people. Perro said FBI investigators had not ruled out terrorism as a reason for the attack and were reviewing the suspect's recent movements. We will be pursuing every angle to try to determine the motive behind this attack. Okay. Uh, I've heard other things, too, that apparently he'd always been into extremist uh, literature even before he went to Iraq. But apparently uh, some of his relatives has come out and said that he had gone to Iraq, I think, in like 2010 and 2011. Pretty close to when we had actually pulled out of Iraq and he went to when he came back, he was he was not the same, they said, which is a fairly common thing for somebody that goes into war. I mean, usually you don't come back the same. Um, but there is an interesting eyewitness report that I'm gonna we're gonna play here in a second. And this is from a guy who said that he witnessed what happened inside the airport. And we have the two man or three man Disappearing shooter phenomenon again. And we see the 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 actually the first time when they caught they shot they caught the guy, but it had to be three sleepers because when we we could see literally inside where the windows you could see the the fire coming from the barrels. It was like at least three people in there still shooting, like it was like a high power rifle, like an AR or something, man. They was non-stop shooting, like they just started hitting different people inside the crowd. 
We had to leave. We had to get off the roof. Yeah. So there we go. Um, just like we played back about a half a year ago with the Orlando nightclub shooting, where they said that there was a guy that was, um, what was he, uh, holding the door and not letting anybody out. Right. And once again, we have an incident where at least one person has said that they saw extra shooters inside the baggage claim area at the airport. Um, also, other contradictions as well. Apparently, they said that the sh some people said the shooter had a rifle. Apparently, as I said in the article, he had checked it in baggage claim, picked it up, took it into the bathroom, loaded it, and came out shooting. Well, others say that they all the only thing they saw him with was a handgun. So you have that contradiction as well. Once again, we're in kind of the heat of the moment, uh, but. Still pretty hard to mistake one shooter for and then three other guys on the roof. So once again, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, and I mean, you know, it could be some security force or something mistaken for yeah. other shooters too. It's I don't know, but it does seem to be pretty consistent with all of these cases. Now, I would be I would be curious, and I didn't really have the time to research this. Um, I would be curious because it said that his mother, uh, it was either his mother or his aunt, said that he had gone to Alaska to work in a security, uh, some kind of security service. Uh, remember Omar Mateen, the Orlando nightclub shooter, had apparently worked for some kind of security service that actually was really kind of a more of a mercenary group that had some weird connections. So I'd be curious to see what this guy, what security service he was actually working for. Uh, maybe we'll see that come out eventually. But I also find it interesting that Esteban Santiago is his name, just laid down on the floor and compliantly and let himself get arrested. Yeah. Instead of going out in a blaze of glory, like most of these crazy assholes like to do. Uh, that's interesting, too. And then also uh, going to the FBI and saying that he was he was being mind-controlled by the CIA, hearing voices that told him to look up extremist materials on the Internet. So we have the mind control aspect in there. We have extra shooters. We have contradictory information on whether he had a he had a rifle or a uh, or a handgun. Um, and we have, and of course, the whole mind control meme, which also came up in the shooting in Kalamazoo. Remember where the guy said that his, his, his Uber, Uber app, app yeah. made him do it when it showed the Eastern Star and the leering devil face. Uh so here we go. And everything that we've talked about, stuff we've talked about on the show with Robert Guffey and uh, some other people about mind control, who knows? I mean, it almost seems like a Manchurian candidate type of thing if he just walks in, starts shooting, and lays on the ground like he's programmed to do it. Yeah. That's but then again, what's the motive? I don't know. Just bizarre. Mm -hmm. And why Florida? 
It's always Florida. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it always is Florida. <laughs> so that's it. First week of 20, 2017. Turn it out to turn it out to be just as shitty. <laughs> so here we go. It's probably going to be a wild ride from here on out. I haven't had any celebrity deaths that I'm aware of. No, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Although I hear they did release a new David Bowie EP. So he's probably still alive somewhere. Oh, which yeah. is a conspiracy theory, by the way. People think that Bowie faked his own death now. Well, of course. That's, you know. But he's up every there musician. in stars, man. <laughs> He's a star man up there in the sky. Louching in the sky. <laughs> On Mars. <laughs> uh, I forgot to ask you, we should have started when we started this segment. Uh, what do you think of Stuff Young? What do you think about the stories? Because uh, you, re- you, you read the book this time as well. So I did. Um, I loved it. The, um, you know, the, it's crazy because the, the, the real common thread between all of them is just bizarre missing person reports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the... Um, the implications behind the stories range all over the place. I mean, you've got you know everything from uh, you know government cover-ups to to UFOs to just bizarre time loss and yeah. I mean, it's I thought it was great. Cryptozoology, like every pretty much anything you can think of, there's right. a, this a bizarre story like that tied to it. So high weirdness and high strangeness. Yeah, that that one about the about the two guys in Tennessee being followed through like three states by a 30 car caravan and then the one guy being abducted by the cult i mean that is just <laughs> right right remind me not to go there let's not go there you don't you can't avoid it if you're driving west <laughs> All right, we, we could get steph to come to you, when she comes she could come to the united states and we, we take her out to the to, to west tennessee yeah it's just a few hours <laughs> We want to take a field trip to the evil cult church. Yeah, let's go find the little church. <laughs> See if there's any human heads mounted <laughs> in the woods. Oh my god. Oh man. So uh, I think we're about. I guess we, we're pretty good time here. So uh, reminder, everybody, we do have a Patreon now. Uh, we're going to constantly remind you about this till you're sick. Of, you're sick of it. Uh, it is. It is www.patreon.com backslash conspiranormal, C-O-N-S-P-I-R-I-N-O-R-M-A-L. You can give on the Patreon, become a Patreon. We do have a show that is should be ready to go uh, where we talked to Joshua Cutchin uh, that we recorded last month about Marian apparitions, about 20 minutes long. Um, And so we have that available for anybody that uh, would like to become a, a become a, a patreon and if you don't want to become a patreon if you don't want to mess with that we do have a donate site on the website www.conspiranormal.com and we of course are also uh i wanted to say that we are on a couple we're on a new network uh this is uh united public radio network out of uh, new orleans uh, they've been posting up some of our shows and I think playing them on the radio down in New Orleans, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, our good friend Guy Malone is on that radio, as, uh, is on that uh, platform as well. And of course, Fringe Radio Network, Deprogram Radio, as we mentioned before, Dark Matter, and uh, yeah, taking over the world. Yeah, we're everywhere. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get more, you know, get more hate mail. Uh, <laughs> 
So uh, next time, guys, as I mentioned before, we're going to do the first romper room. We're gonna we're gonna get into some uh, what was it Skittles and unicorns? Yep. And uh, talk about how optimistic we are about the future of the world. Yeah. I'm the most pessim one of the most pessimistic persons. I don't know how that like my. I guess that that person must be really pessimistic to not think that to think that what we talk about is skittles and rainbows. We talk <laughs> about mass shootings and people being abused and war and that kind of crap. Well, somehow you manage to be pessimistic and happy at the same time, like upbeat. You're not upbeat pessimist. Uh, I guess upbeat pessimist. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I guess I'm more realist, like Gigi Azalea says. You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That song's my guilty pleasure. Nice. But uh <laughs> All right guys. Uh hopefully uh also we'll have Luke here and Jeff. Uh hopefully Luke will be here to give us an update on the Monster Jam truck rally. And guys, uh there's nothing to add, Rob. We'll go ahead and we'll call it. All right. Man of many words. Oh, I nodded. Sorry people. I nodded. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should do a video podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back next time. No guest, but all the rest of us on Conspiranormal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save big money now on new siding from LP SmartSide at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP SmartSide today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.